0: Uh, It is April eighth, two 2012. Our message this morning is called Something Different. It is the fourth in a series called Spiritual Violence. Uh, The first part of this series started with descriptions in the Hebraic text about God. The Lord is a warrior. That is His name, Exodus said. It describes uh, Him riding forth in battle, even sometimes with blood-splattered garments. These were all foreign concepts to us. They're foreign concepts to us because we talk of the Lord in terms of love. We looked at those passages and said, how on earth is that love? It was love because if God was not powerful, if God was not strong enough to stand against the enemy, this is what the enemy did to you. We looked at examples like, why does Cuba not overthrow the United States? And the obvious answer is because they cannot. There is a devil who wants to steal from you, kill you, and destroy you, and the only reason he has not succeeded is because of a powerful, merciful, benevolent God who has allowed you to live this long. Our lives are quite literally in his hands, and no one snatches you out of his hands. Our first message had to do with the greatest arena of battle that we face. First and foremost, the voice of our own flesh. If you had a sweet tooth and you were placed on a desert island and born again on that desert island, you would still have a sweet tooth. If you got on your knees to pray, at some point your body is going to scream at you, I'm done praying, right? This is the voice of the flesh. How many of you woke up this morning and and your body said, oh, praise God, let's fast. Probably not. It doesn't happen. In fact, the only way you ever fast is when something arises in your spirit. Your mind's not able to reason it away, and you force your flesh to obey it, right? We looked at what it was to battle with the flesh. Not all the flesh's desires are wrong. My flesh would like to breathe, and I'm in one accord with that desire, right? Not all of them are wrong. However, this is a weak spot in mankind. So we looked at the ways to crucify the flesh, the ways in which to submit our very members of our body to the Lord. In the second message, we looked at a second arena of battle. We looked at the world's environment and how it teams up with your flesh. The world provides temptation that the flesh enjoys. So if you were struggling on the desert island with no influences, what happens when you're put in Times Square? Suddenly everything your flesh wants is is available. These kind of entanglements the Scripture tells us to avoid. Uh, James says uh, the pollution of the world. Well, some of it is polluting, and and Paul said to Timothy, some is not polluting, it's simply entanglement. No soldier concerns himself with civilian affairs. He doesn't get entangled in them because he wants to please his commanding officer. So we looked at crucifying the flesh and dying to this world and this world to us. Then in the third message, we looked at the entry of triumph, the first human being to ever stand upon the earth that could tell his flesh no whenever he wanted to that could look at this world and desire nothing in it because he was here to completely renovate it and change it. This was the first chance humanity had at triumph. We took a little break this last Wednesday. It was the same subject, but we took a break in our series. We brought a goat in, and I taught you about biblical imagery, how the Passover lamb... How the Day of Atonement, Azazel, or Scapegoat, all of the above magnify the ministry of Jesus and teach about the ministry of Jesus. My point was to place today's message in its proper context. We are in a spiritually violent creation. Kingdom of Light is clashing against Kingdom of Darkness. The world was enveloped in darkness, and God decided to do something about it. He spoke light into that darkness. Then he brought order to it. He numbered the days, one through seven. He gave a purpose to them on the seventh day. We would magnify his name. We would honor his name. Then he put a man who was made in his image upon the earth and said, you subdue it. Another way to think of that might be you complete the work that I have begun and intend to complete in you. We know that man didn't do very well with that. But with the entry of triumph, Jesus said things like John 12. This would be John 12, 27. He said, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it's for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. When your skin is on the line, the book of Job seems to suggest that the devil thinks there is no chance that you would do God's will over your own skin. You remember he said, skin for skin. But when Jesus' skin was on the line, he said, Father, glorify your name. This is a man who has completely defeated the self-preservation instinct, and all he wants to do is glorify God. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit. Not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. This was a commission that was given to Adam. The the commission to Adam was that he would go forth and subdue the earth, that he would multiply the presence of God, that he would spread all over the planet the goodness of what God had deposited in him. This is not what the first human being did. You know, I look at this week, And more than once this week, someone who loves me pointed out a flaw in my life. This was a good thing. You want these. You want people that love you enough that expect you to get better. And as that happened, a sobering thing happened. I realized that every flaw that is found in me, I mean nearly everyone and certainly the two major ones that were glaring at me this week, they're found in my children. Yeah. Yeah. And can I blame my children for that? See, we're all passing something along. We're all part of the same diseased human stock. Despite all man's medical advancements, we still die. Despite all of man's enlightenment, we still sin and do it regularly. Despite all of man's advancements and achievements, conquering our flesh and the desire of this world and the satanic powers that manipulate both of those things. It's not something that we've mastered yet. And yet this is something that God has called us to do. Jesus was the only human being that could say, now it's time for the judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. You know why Jesus could say he would be driven out? Because he had no hold on Jesus. There was nothing in Jesus that wanted something of the world. There was nothing in Jesus that had compromised with some area of the enemy. The enemy had no leverage in Jesus' life. He said, but when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. We spoke about the crucifixion Wednesday, and I don't intend to talk a great deal about it today, but it is impossible to understand the resurrection and the solution to all of man's problems without understanding what the problems were. Today, people say, yes, I was saved. They mean that they prayed a warm, fuzzy prayer at an altar. Nothing in their life changed, but they say they were saved. And then the question is, saved from what? Well, I I don't know. I guess I'm going to heaven. Saved to what? Saved for what? The Bible teaches these things. It teaches salvation for a purpose. It teaches us that God had work destined for us to do. And that there is only one way that you'll ever discover it and have the power to complete it. And that's with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and the regenerating work of the cross. It is with the power of the resurrection working in you. Turn with me to Genesis 2. Y'all don't go quiet on me this morning. I'm used to preaching these days to audiences that are not American and so stiff that they were born in stone underwear and unable to agree out loud you will do better than that. Don't come simply to to sit and soak. Come to participate. This is your church. It's your community. And amen every now and then wouldn't kill you. And dear God, if you think something was good, say so. This is the resurrection Sunday. It's not the stone cold sit in my pew dead Sunday. If you want to go to a church where your name won't be called, if you want to go to a church where they preach about everybody but you, that is not this church. This church is your church, which means that it is here to challenge your life, here to confront things in your life, here to encourage you, but most of all, to interact with you, and it is not a one-way street. So talk to your pastor this morning. Somebody say, good morning, pastor. See, you can all speak, so help me as we do this. Tell me when you're in Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, let us pick up in the 15th verse. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden, to work it and to take care of it. Man was always meant to be in the working business. The idea that somehow we would simply coast is demonic. It has never been that way. Even in the millennium, with every enemy put under feet, man will still have work. The Father worked from the beginning and works to this day, Jesus said. He said, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and finish His work. We will always have something to do because we serve an active God, a God who is not absent from the universe. He didn't set it and forget it. He's not Ron Popeil with the latest invention for 1999 sold on, on TV. He is a God who is interacting with us daily. And friends, if you're going to interact with Him, it's the same way as interacting with me. We never sit in stone cold silence and simply call it reverence. If He had wanted that, salvation would be for the rocks. But it's not. It's for men. And we praise Him that He speaks to us. You know what He wants from you? for you to speak back, for you to walk with Him, to interact with Him. Not believe silently in your heart, but believe so loud it shows up in your lives. This is the resurrection power of God, that a man might live differently, that his old nature would be crucified and a new nature would rise up. This is the promise of God, not to just believe there's an empty tomb, but to have experienced it because a dead body is left behind in your life too. My life is different, friends, and your life ought to be different too. If it's not, you're still in your sin regardless of what you believe. Man was put there to work it and the Lord God commanded the man you are free. Come on, say you are free. Christianity is not about restriction. This was never the goal of God to simply give you a list of what you cannot do. The first words that God gave mankind was you are free. You are free. The freedom came. It came with a cost. It came with a warning. It says, you are free. I'm not going to make you do anything. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. There is one thing that God reserved for Himself, and it is called lordship, friends. This is not a neat little theological principle. It is the right to tell you what is good and evil, and not have you dictate to Him What is good and evil? Have you ever noticed that whatever a man wants to do, whatever his mind conceives of, his heart tends to justify? You know, a man commits adultery, but he'd be arguing with his wife saying, I did it for you. You know, it's the most amazing thing that a man can justify almost anything. We rationalize away the will of God. You know, we all have read the Great Commission, but we don't go, we don't support it, We don't have anything to do with it except one Sunday a month, right? Why? How how can we do that? Because we've rationalized away what God so clearly said. Lordship issue that is at stake right here is do you have the right to decide what is good for you and what is bad for you or does only God have that right? He reserved it for Himself and He said the day that you take this right from Me and take it upon yourself, the day that you do that, you die. Now, I wish he had said you had become dead. Our problem would be over right then. Then Eve would have reached out for whatever that was because mal in Latin means evil as well as other things. Historically, people have drawn it as an apple tree, but how many of you know Latin is not the holy language? Yeah, anything Latin, I would like to attach the word pig to. I prefer to say pig Latin. Of course, that's something else, but in any case, it helps you make a distinction between the profane. And the holy. So, uh, if you want a mass in Latin, well, you get what I'm saying. Here, here's where I'm going, though, friends. Here's where it is. This is, this is, this is the brass tacks. When it comes down to it, if man had touched, if the woman first had touched whatever this fruit was and dropped dead, what would the husband have done? Lord, you give me another one. I got more ribs. It's a big planet. It's a long I hadn't figured out how to multiply by myself, you know. Uh, put water on me after midnight, Lord. Help us. What are we going to do? But when we don't see the consequence of sin immediately, when it's slow but ever so pervasive, when it when takes it you further than you wanted to go, at the end of a thing we can see the result is death. But in the beginning, it evidently didn't look like that. Of course, the longer they lived in it, the more shame grew. They had to get bigger and bigger fig leaves. They had to go hide from God. God told man, when you reject me as Lord, when you reject my right to tell you what is good and evil, death will enter the world. Now, friends, who in here has not done that? Then we're not going to blame it on Adam and Eve. Right? Because the reality is, you know the good that you should do, and you often do not do it. Am I wrong? Somebody say, Pastor, you are wrong. Yeah, I see We're deadly silent because you know I'm not wrong. You you know it. You ever had all of these questions? Lord, if I had been at the cross, if I had been there, I never would have. Liar. Liar. you know how we know that that's a lie? Because we sin to this day. We know that it's a lie because we still know the good that we should do. Do not do it. And there's only one remedy for that. It's the supernatural power of God to give you strength over your flesh to break the attachments to this world. It is the credited righteousness that comes from the blood of Christ and makes you able to mingle your spirit with His Spirit so that it cries out, I am a son of God. I am better than this. This is where we're going. So the first man failed. And that's not the real issue. Every man thereafter failed. That's the real issue. Look, how did this failure occur? Look at Genesis 3. Start in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Is that what your Bible says? Does somebody's Bible not have those words? You know, it's an interesting thing because nowhere in the scriptures is it recorded that you must not touch it. You know, this is how sin happens, though. Stand up, Gabriel. If I say, Devin, if you talk to Gabe, you will die. He's ever so quiet. He touched it and nothing happened. Got close to it and nothing happened. He looks pretty normal. Kind of. (laughs) What could it be? Why would God say this? He seems harmless enough. And the rationalization begins why God is wrong and you have a chance to do what you want to do. See, I bet she walked up to the thing and touched it first. I bet she took a big, long look at it. She probably smelled it. She probably got the aroma of it. She goes far enough to say it is pleasing to the eye. It is desirable for gaining wisdom. What if she had never even gone near it? See, one of the problems is the devil is crafty. And death doesn't come upon you once, uh, uh, immediately. It has a way of creeping in your life in ten years, <coughs> into the process, putting you to death in a way that you don't relate to the original cause. you understand what I'm telling you? See, so what happens then is the woman fails to know exactly what God said. She begins to add to it or take away from it, whichever you prefer. She goes further than she should have, and she eats of it. And she gives some to her husband also, and he eats of it. There's a whole story behind that, but trust me, men, you are not innocent. The result of this, for all mankind, is death. That's the result. You know, if you heard tomorrow there was a bus crash, and 70 family members on the way to a family reunion You'd call that a tragedy. Right? You'd be moved in your heart because it was 70 people who were related, headed somewhere for a purpose. But when all humanity falls under the power of death, it's just kind of an accepted fact. It ought to grieve us. It ought to hurt us. It is spiritual violence being done to us. The weakness in our flesh and the allure of the world the devil used to take mankind captive to do us will. So that Ephesians 2 can go so far as to say that the spirit of the prince of the power of the air, the prince of disobedience, is at work in people who are not saved. How could he say that? Because they have the same goals. They do what their father does. Even religious people, friends. What a terrible, terrible fate for those who were made in God's image. Those who were given a godly task to subdue the earth. Those who who were supposed to be the liberation of the earth ended up in bondage just like the earth. Now the scripture actually declares that the earth longs to be liberated from its bondage by knowing who the sons of God are. It says it in Romans 8. When death entered the world in Genesis 3.14, look at these words. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now, I realize these days there are people that have snakes for pets. I'm sorry for you. That's not normal. But you don't lift up a rock. You don't lift up a rock and look at nasty things that are under it crawling around and say, oh, I want that in the bed with me. You don't say I just like to cuddle up next to a millipede, you know? That is not a normal human thing. This imagery is supposed to cause you to revile when you see a snake, it is supposed to... The snake itself, of course, is not evil. It's, it's just a part of the creation. It was a tool among many. But the imagery is supposed to cause you to go, Don't step on that. Don't get near that. Don't touch that. It has the power to kill you. This was the imagery of sin. But instead, we look at it, and just like some strange teenage boys, we want to play with it. We want to watch it eat. We want to build a cage in our room until it escapes from the room and your parents go crazy, right? Am I the only one that has seen people do this? How many of you, do some of you have snakes in your house right now? Good, good. Get rid of them. Watch this. It has become a fascination and a spectacle and what it was meant to be it was a warning. Friends, that is metaphor. This is what sin has become around us. A spectacle, entertainment. We watch it in a glowing box on our our walls. We look at it all around us. We question none of it. Instead, we just put a Christian stamp on all the things of the world and we say, we want them, we just want the Christian version. There's no Christian version of sin. Guys, the Lord has to tell us what is right what is wrong and we have to take our stand where he does and maybe you didn't know that yesterday maybe he didn't make something clear to you one day but the moment he makes it clear you know what he does he holds you responsible for it that produces an ever-changing ever-growing life something that you could even call a relationship it's the difference between having a rule book that descended from heaven that you downloaded and having a relationship with the living God. In fact, you may even find out that something's okay for Zeke and is not okay for Keith. Something might be okay for Joel and is not okay for Dustin because we have a living God who knows you. He knows you and He understands you better than you understand yourself. Let me ask you, church, are you hearing what the Spirit is saying to you today? Yes. Amen. We have to break our fascination with sin. We have to break our love for the things of the world. And if you don't do it, then make no mistake, you imitate your Father rather than the Heavenly Father. This is how we know who the sons of God are. He who continues to sin has not been born of God. This is what 1 John says. It couldn't be any clearer. This snake was intended to be a symbol for all mankind forever of a creepy, crawly, nasty thing that would produce death. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. There would be a warfare between all of the offspring of the woman and all of the things that the snake represented, the power of sin. There would be a continual warfare. Well, let me ask you, saints, for some 6,000 years now, how is mankind doing in its battle against sin? Pretty miserable failures, huh? Not so good. I mean, we have war on a uh, sickening scale. I, I read on Drudge report yesterday, a man in Baltimore, and he was probably not doing good things. It was St. Patrick's Day parade, got punched right in the face and knocked him down. Nearly 100 people took out their cameras and videotaped him on the ground, while the man who punched him in the face stripped him completely naked, stealing his watch, his wallet, His underwear, his socks. He woke up in the street completely naked in front of a hundred people. How are we doing with our struggle with sin? This is animalistic behavior. It is less than man was called to be. Of course, when you remove all of God's influences from a society except His name on your money, then we kind of get what we've asked for now. And everybody says the same thing. If I had been there, it would have been different. I bet those hundred people go to church somewhere. That was, that was just the other day. And you know what? It's getting hits like crazy on the internet because people are fascinated with sin. Fascinated with, not disgusted by, not reviled by, fascinated with. We're supposed to be at war with sin. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers... He will crush your head and you will strike His heel. He didn't say mankind would crush your head. He said He, a very singular word that Paul picks up on in the book of Galatians, a singular seed, He will crush your head. There would be one that would come out of mankind, a star that would rise from Jacob, a messianic hope, the one, if you would. He would come forward and He would deliver mankind from the sin problem. He would be temporarily stricken, but he would be the crushing force. The very first time that I read to you about spiritual violence, I read to you from the Psalms where God said He would crush the hairy crowns of the wicked. In Psalm 58 where He said the righteous would bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked, and everybody went, ooh. But see, the Bible is a picture of warfare. Life and death struggle, and when spiritual powers struggle with fleshly powers, and all you have is flesh, you lose. You lose hundred percent of the time. Ask Sinacharib's armies. One angel killed 185,000 men. Ask the army of the Armenians that went against Elijah and Gehazi, and he blinded them with a word. Ask the man who tried to put chains on the Gadarean demoniac and nobody could chain him because he was too strong. If all you have is flesh and you are fighting with spiritual powers, you lose. But there would come one. Here he simply referred to with the pronoun he, but in the original language it speaks of a seed, a singular seed. There would come one who would have head-crushing power. He would be like the Lord. The Lord is a warrior, that is his name. The Lord is mighty in battle. That is Him. He's mighty to say, horses and riders have been cast into the sea. The Lord is mighty, they would say. Amen. There would come one who would be like Him, a warrior from of old, someone who was strong enough to do what you could not do. You know who understood this? Adam understood it. you know how he understood it? Her name had simply been woman. That's all he called her, but in the 20th verse, he named her. In Hebrew, you name somebody according to their function. It's like the old Indian names. Stands with a fist is because she stands with a fist. In Hebrew, if you have the name Judah, it's because your mama thought you were a joy. Or your daddy thought you were a joy. He named her. What was the first woman's name, friends? Eve. Eve. It means mother of all the living. What a strange thing. You're getting your death sentence. You're being told you will die. And you turn to your spouse, your lifelong eternal partner. And you go, your name is Eve. You will be the mother of the living. He understood something that the powers in the heavens didn't even understand. He understood that from her body would come somebody who would crush the sinful power. Somebody would come from her body that would do what he had failed to do. Isn't this the hope of every husband and wife? That their children would do more than they could do. Now in America it's been twisted. We want our children to have more than we ever had. We want them to possess more. More than we ever possess. This is a corruption of the call of God that says, I want you to take the kingdom further than I could. I'm hoping you will be the one that will crush the enemy. Amen. Amen. I named my firstborn Judah. And I named him Judah and took him to a school here in Sugarland, And the little Jewish boy said, You're Judas Maccabeus. <laughs> said, no, no, he's Judah the fourth of Israel. You know, now my kid didn't know how to say that at the time. But why did the Jews love Judas Maccabeus? Because when their kingdom, the Hasmonean dynasty, was under pressure from Antiochus Epiphanes and the Syrian powers, he stood up and did what nobody else would do. He went to war with them and beat them. See, the Hebrews understand a peace that comes from the strength of God working inside. It's it's not the oppressive force of Islam. It's the liberating force of Judaism. And friends, Jesus is the King of the Jews. He is a warrior in His very being. He's from the fabric of spiritual warriors. Now, He could look Pilate in the eye and say, if my kingdom were of this world, my people would fight. Because He didn't come and intend to do a battle with flesh, friends came and intended to address the real issue they were puppet masters in the heavenlies they were sinful masterminds architects of man's demise and he intended to deal with them in a very public fashion man has not just the problem of death we have another problem look at Genesis 4 as we understand the problems perhaps we will begin to understand the solution in Genesis 4, look at the sixth verse. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? I bet he was angry as a murderer. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? I wonder why Cain didn't look at the Lord and say, You don't know my heart. No one knows my heart. Religion's a private matter. How dare you judge me? Just because I'm not smiling doesn't mean that I'm not happy. You know why he didn't do those things? He would not been taught to lie by an American pastor. Oh, well, there's a joy and there's a... Look, friends, I don't care what you called it, if I can't see it, it's not there. Amen. Let's just say it. Paul said the same thing to the Galatians. He said, who cut, on, cut in on you? You're running a good race. What happened to all your joy? You show me people who cannot get joyful, we'll give you a lemon award. You are not living the life that God called you to live. You know who apparently had some days this week that were not as joyful as they should be? Mm -hmm. Me. But somebody loved me enough to tell me. What do we do, friends, when somebody loves you enough to tell you you are not living up to the standard God called you to? What do you do? You repent. It's the pathway to righteousness. If you hate correction, Proverbs 12 says something you don't want your kids to hear. It says you're stupid. I didn't say it, it's the NIV. If you think that's non-inspired, then I will show you some words in King James that you will think are equally uninspired. Yeah, if you don't know about those translations, then you don't know what I'm talking about. You You should love it because we want to do better tomorrow than we did today. We want the Lord to show us the right way for us to live. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. The power of sin is personified here. No longer typified by the snake, just personified as sin. It wants to enslave you, master you. Your flesh is drawn to sin the same way that a moth is drawn to a flame, the same way fish is drawn to water or white to rice. Your flesh loves sin. And the reason that it does is because we were born corrupted. Wicked people sin like a plant growing in its native soil, the Bible says. So something has to happen. Some profound change has to happen in us. There has to be a complete renewal of your nature. There has to be an uprooting from your worldly environment and a planting in the community of God. That has to happen. Today we say if you come to the altar and you pray a, a, a USDA-approved, church-certified sinner's prayer that doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible, then you're good. Why not just say if we baptize you as an infant, you're good? Why not just say if you're a member of the Holy Pig Latin Church, you're good? Why not just say if you ate an M&M or a certain kind of wafer, you're good? The Bible doesn't say any of those things and it also does not spell out a sinner's prayer and say if you say it, you're good. It doesn't say that. Show me. The proof that you're in Christ, the proof is that your life has changed. It is the life that is typified by the empty grave. You are no longer in death. Something has changed. Come on, something Is different. That is the hope of Christianity. And the resurrection proves it's possible. We have two problems, friends. Two problems we fight with. One is we die, and the second is we cannot be accepted by God while sin is our master. You can come to Him and He will free you from that and make you a slave to righteousness, but you cannot serve two masters. Jesus Himself said it. Our two great problems in mankind are that we feel the rejection and the loss of the presence of God. We feel that, and so we fill it with other things, our flesh's desires, the temptations of the world. We fill that void with something. And our other problem is that we die in that condition. This is the power of death. Sin is its sting. You die separated from God. From the oldest book in the Bible, man needs help. With this problem. From the most ancient of writings, as far back as we can go, man discusses these things. Turn with me to Job 9. Tell me when you're there. Job is not a book about a job, it's a book about a man just like you. Say, Pastor, I'm in Job 9 when you're there. 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 David is there. Two of you are there. The rest of you already gave up on me. Come on, Spence. Are you there? There. Come on, Spence is there. Mama, are you there? There. there? There. Look, you guests don't want me to know your name, do you? (laughs) You there, Trey? Come on, man. In 9.32, this is a complaint by Job, a question. He is not a man like me that I might answer him. He's speaking of the Most High. That we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to arbitrate between us to lay a hand upon us both, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him But as it now stands with me, I cannot. Job is crying out, I need the one, the seed that was spoken of by the woman. I need the star that would rise out of Israel. I need the lion of the tribe of Judah. I need help. I cannot do this by myself. I need somebody to put his hand on God. Somebody to put his hand on me and to make peace. I am perpetually under his rod of wrath and I have no way out. If your salvation prayer said, Lord, I'm a pretty good old boy right now, but with you I could be better and I won't even have to go to hell, that's great, let's get some ice cream Lord. Then you're probably still in your sin because salvation is the awareness that you are under the wrath of God. And there is not a thing in the world you can do about it, because your very best efforts are filthy rags. And you cry out for the one who can do something about it. You cry out for something different. Turn with me from the book of Job, unless you want to read about boils. And why don't you go, friends, to the book of Exodus? I haven't decided yet, Brandon. I want you to know that the Bible story is a repeating story. Any good director, anybody who has made a drama, doesn't simply have a singular, simple, linear plot line. The good guy wins, bad guy loses. If that were the case, everybody's interest would be lost. And only the simplest in the audience would get that message. The others would look for more deep, nuanced messages. Have you ever heard political commentators? I know what he said was, but what he meant was. (laughs) Right? We've been hearing a lot of that lately, friends. I know what he said was, but what he meant was. Sounds like my kids. Well, what had happened was. (laughs) Listen. This story has been repeating itself over and over. And the biblical narrative shows us this in many different ways through characters like Methuselah in the Bible. Methuselah, when he was born, his name, his function was when I die, judgment comes. His name literally means a standard. So his daddy was 65 years old when Methuselah was born. You can read about this in Genesis 5. And you know what his daddy did when the boy was born? He walked with God. There was an awareness that judgment was coming. Sin was being exposed. It was no longer something hidden like termites in a wall. You could suddenly see damage from it. My child is a standard. And the day that he dies... Judgment is going to happen. The father walked so closely with God that he walked with God and was no more. It carried on through men like Shem. In Genesis 9, we find out that Shem would be an example. His tent, his lifestyle, what he would produce would be an example. All mankind would have to come into one branch of humanity and live like them. In other words, God's special revelation would come to one people group. Is it any, any, Mistake then that the Jewish people are Semitic, Shemetic, Shem. See, in Shem's life we learn that Ham and Japheth, Ham would become a servant to his brothers and Japheth would come into the tent of Shem. This was God's road to success. There will always be some in humanity that will not let me be their king. But Shem will show you my righteousness. Shem, blessed be the God of Shem. May Japheth dwell in his tent. In other words, I will so bless one people group, and I will show you my hand in their lives, that you will want to come and be a part of them. Come on, grafted in Gentiles. What are we talking about? You know what's wrong with calling today Easter and, and our Christmas celebrations and everything else? It's not that there's something inherently evil about the way that we do it. It's distracting from the pattern that God laid down for us. When you call it Easter and you don't even know there was a Passover this week, you don't know that today is actually a day where we would celebrate the Feast of fruits. We miss the pattern. I'm not uh, here to turn you into Jews. Isn't this crazy? If you love the world, we still call you a Christian. If you love the Jews, we call you a Judaizer. What is wrong with our society? I love the Jews because I love the Jewish king. Amen. I love the Jews because I love the pattern that was laid down. It teaches me. In Shem, we found out that all humanity would have to have to move into one humani- part of humanity's revelation. When we got to Abraham, we found out that a faithful father would have to be willing to sacrifice his son and even be willing to believe that God would raise him from the dead. How about Joseph? By the time we get to Genesis 50, Joseph says... When you go up out of this place, Egypt, that symbolizes slavery, bring my bones with you. Why on earth would you want somebody to carry your bones? Because Joseph understood that not only would somebody crush the power of sin and rise from the dead, in his heart he believed that that man would cause him to rise from the dead. And so where his bones were, were important to him. My goodness, why do people want to be buried on the Mount of Olives, Jew and Gentile? Because the world knows something is going to happen there. The gospel has declared it. But before the gospel ever declared it, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, named it and named it the mountain. By the time we get to Melchizedek in Genesis 14, we find out that there's a priesthood greater in the heavens than the one that is on the earth. By the time we move into Moses, we find out that a prophet would come, a prophet who would hear from God, a prophet greater even than Moses, and he would bring a deliverance to the people. When we see Joshua arise in the book of Exodus, we find out that there would be a heavenly method of salvation who would come and do battle with the enemies of God. In the deepest, lowest places, he would go to war with men like Amalek for your safety. First John says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. As we move through men like David's life and we see what happened, we see that there's a cycle of warfare, a cycle of praise, and that the two could go hand in hand, that you could have a smile on your face and be a man of peace and yet go to war with the enemies of God because if you didn't, They enslaved your people. Come on, this is the heart with which we're supposed to beat in our chest. Yes, we're happy. Yes, we love the people around us, but we are intensely serious about what would enslave them. And we are willing to fight to protect the sheep. Come on now. Do you want a daddy that can only give you kisses? Or do you want a daddy that will protect you from a wolf that's trying to enter your house? Come on ladies, what beats in your chest? Do you want a knight in shining armor? Or do you want a daffodil that simply sprays you with perfume? What do you want? Why do you think we're called the bride of Christ? We're called the bride of Christ because we all have the same basic need. We need His protection. We need His affection. But we cannot get one and not the other. They come as a package. The Lord is a warrior. When we moved on from David, you see men like Elijah. Did you know that Elijah was promised twice the anointing of Elijah? In any way you count it, whether you say that Elijah did seven miracles or you say he did eight miracles, I mean, these are things theologians debate about. No matter what you say, when you look at Elisha's life, you do not get twice the number. You always come up with one short. Isn't that crazy? say, what's wrong, God? You can't do math. Except one day, while some Moabite raiders were entering into Israel, 2 Kings 13 says, they threw an Israelite's body into a tomb. And it happened to be Elijah's tomb. And when that body touched his bones, 2 Kings 13, 20 and 21 says, it came to life. This was a message. It was a plot spoiler. It was a a hidden message to people that could see. It said, even if it takes a resurrection from the dead, my promises are yes and amen. I will never let one fall to the ground. Come on, my friends. Even if it takes a resurrection from the dead, my will is always done. Elijah didn't see it in his lifetime, but he saw it in his life. (laughs) Come on now, because... I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He did not cease to be. His bones were there and His spirit was there, but there will be a uniting of them, Paul said. A glorified body. How do we know these things, friends? Because He, He has come. This is how we know. A young man in our church service today prophesied the words of Jonah from the book of Jonah. In Jonah's life, we see that it might take three days and three nights and he might be a long ways from being able to see him. Whether a whale swallowed him or he was in the heart of the earth, three days and three nights would make all the difference in the world. We saw a sign of Jonah. This morning we're here to celebrate the sign of Jonah. Yes. In the nation of Israel's culture, God began to reveal how he would answer the problems of acceptance and how he would depend on Upon a ransom being paid, are you in the book of Exodus? Turn to Exodus 30. Oh, the brother is so fast. I'm going to get you to come up here and turn my Bible. Mine needs a new transmission. I think fifth year is out. In Exodus 30, look at the 11th verse. Then the Lord said to Moshe, when you take a census of the Israelites to count them, Each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he has counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. Each one who crosses over, say crosses over. Each one who crosses over to those already counted is to give a half shekel according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 geras. The half shekel is an offering to the Lord all who... Cross over. Those 20 years old or more are to give an offering to the Lord. The rich are not to give more than a half shekel, and the poor are not to give less when you make the offering to the Lord to atone for your lives. They actually took the camp of Israel and they divided it into two sides. They called one side the living and they called the other side the dead. And when you paid a ransom and crossed over, you moved from the side of death to the side of life, to be outside the community of Israel, a nomadic desert people at the time, was to be outside of provision, affection and protection. And it was as good as death. But you could pay silver, redemption, and move from death into life. This was the Lord of hosts trying to tell us that He would come and pay a price for us to move us from death outside the people of God to life inside the people of God. Turn with me to John 5. Listen to these words. Two of you are there. We must wait on all of you. We're leaving none behind. Everybody crosses the Jordan this morning. Every single one, the whole nation. Here comes John 5, and we pick up in the 24th verse, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over, over from death to life. Amen. They understood these words. They understood them because it was a part of their history. They'd even seen censuses taken that were not done correctly, and a plague broke out on the people. When Jesus came and said you can cross over, they understood. Although we're the people of God, He's saying we don't qualify as the people of God unless we obey (coughs) Him. My goodness, friends, whatever God has told you up to this point, it's fantastic and I hope you've been obedient to it. But if you become disobedient to what He tells you tomorrow and you will not repent, you're no longer qualified to be the people of God. Salvation is not a one-time magic pill. It is a lifelong walk. It's a little bit like saying that because Michael was born, he doesn't have to do anything else. No, Michael has to live, friends. And to live, he has to eat. He has to breathe. He has to do all kinds of things. So, well, then it's not a gift. Really, his life is not a gift. Are we really going to say that? The fact that you could be born in the kingdom is a gift, a gift you never could have earned, but you must walk in the kingdom. Faith produces obedience, and without obedience, you have no faith, every chapter of the book of Hebrews, the people who gave us the culture and language of the Bible, has a warning against falling away. You know why? Because every member of the nation, save two, did fall away. Yeah, they left Egypt. Paul even reminds us of this. They followed the leading of the Spirit. They were baptized in the Red Sea. The Spirit was the cloud by day. But they did not inherit what was promised. And their bodies fell in the desert. But two had a different spirit. Two out of the nation. Come on now. We need something different. We need something different than wholesale failure. Wholesale acceptance and fascination with sin. We need something different. A ransom has been paid. Look at verse 25. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. How can a time be coming and has now come? Because there are two fulfillments of this. There is a time coming and a time that has now come. They were hearing His Word, and when they became obedient to His Word, they stepped right into life. But there was a time yet to come when even their dead bodies would hear His voice and come right out of the grave. What preceded the physical victory? The spiritual victory. You will never in a million years get a victory in the flesh without a victory in the spirit. Never. This is why when we began teaching, we wanted to show you what the problem was. The problem is your own evil desires that are at work within you. The problem is our own fascination with the world. The last of our problems is the devil. The last. He is a problem, but he's the last of our problems. Most are completely defeated in the first two realms. We never even get to the third arena. But Jesus has shown up. And he had total victory in the first two realms. Amen. Total, complete, devastating victory. Isaiah 25 is something worth reading. Keep your finger in the New Testament. Go to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 25, look at verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. Although God had Shem's descendants in mind, He always intended people to be grafted into Shem's descendants. Although God had a special revelation for Israel and would send a king to Israel, He always had you in mind as well. But with a problem, you have to start somewhere, friends. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine. Sorry, Southern Baptists. The best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all the faces. He will remove the disgrace of His people from all of the earth. If you've ever been to a funeral, if you've ever buried a loved one or a child that died before their time, I can only tell you how this verse reverberates in your spirit. Death is a disgrace. It is a mark of shame, a blight on humanity. We comfort our children by saying, oh, it's a natural part of life. It is not natural. It is violent. It is terrible. It is an enemy of God and the last enemy to be put down. But there is victory in Jesus over it. Tell your children it's natural. Tell them it's unnatural. It's a shame. It's a terrible thing. It is an injustice. But Jesus is fixing it. Amen. Get on his team. Get on his team. This is what we should tell our children. In Genesis 22, do you remember that Abraham hauled his son Isaac up a mountain, and the son carried the wood, and the father carried the knife? It said that on the third day he looked into the distance and he saw the place. It's amazing because Jesus would later, some 2,000 years later, as far from Jesus uh, was Abraham as we are from Jesus, I mean that many years. He would say, I tell you the truth, Abraham longed for my day. And he saw it. You know when he saw it? When he took his son to a region, looked up, and he saw Moriah, the region of of Moriah. This is where Golgotha is. This is where Calvary is. It's where the temple would later be settled. It's part of the mountain range that is the Mount of Olives where the resurrection would happen. And he drew a knife above his son. And an angel stopped him and said, Now I know. Now I know that you love me because you haven't withheld your son, your only son. And this would foreshadow something that God would do. Amen. do you remember that Isaac asked a question on the way up the mountain. He said, Father, I see the wood and I see the knife, but where? Where is the sacrifice? The name, that mountain, the Lord will provide. Not the Lord has provided, the Lord will provide. <laughs> Yahweh Yireh. If you say Jehovah Jireh, you need to be corrected, but we'll accept it anyway. Yahweh Yireh, the Lord will provide. A ram appeared caught by a thicket. The thicket symbolized the sin that came out of the ground. The ram was the king of the sheep caught by his crown. This is why in the first chapter of John, Jesus is announced as, Behold, the Lamb of God comes to take away the sin of the world. The Hebrew people were waiting for the one that was promised to the woman. They were waiting for the son of Abraham. They were waiting for the prince of their people that would bring deliverance. But were they waiting only? Did not Magi come at his birth, men from the east? Did not men who looked at the stars come from all over the place to reverence the one who was different? Jesus and John 8 could stand in the temple and say, Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? And it went silent, friends. Mary is sweet, but she was a sinner. Joseph is amazing, but he was a sinner. Jesus was not a sinner. <laughs> He was different. He was something different. When is the last time the Spirit led you somewhere you didn't want to go, friends? Turn with me to Luke 4. <laughs> to this church, Kevin. <laughs> See, I'll steal your punchline. There. Yeah. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining. arm in John 4, Luke 4 say, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, turned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert. It's an amazing thing. The Holy Spirit tends to lead you places your flesh would not want to go. Is this a hand? Ronnie, is this a hand? No. It looks like a hand, doesn't it? From a distance, if you suffer from myopia or, or, or whatever... <laughs> Some vision impairment. And this we're standing up in the distance, might you mistake it for a hand? Yeah. What do you do when somebody says, hey, I'm the son of man? <laughs> uh, aren't we all? What's different about you? you ever seen a shark attack something? I mean, am I the only one watching Shark Week? In my house it was a staple. My parents were divers and, you know, I mean, we saw the same recordings year after year in life of all each time. A shark will circle something in the sea. And every once in a while, when it's not sure what it is, it'll bump into it and see how it reacts. This is what's going on at the temptation. He looks exactly like a man, just like this glove looks like a hand. But every man that he had ever encountered at any time before, even when it looked strong, it looked exactly like God, it looked like something made in God's image, he could dangle something in front of it and it would bow to it. He could appeal to its flesh and it would crumble before him. I mean, you name me a man of God in the Bible, and I'll, I'll tell you a sin that the Bible records that they did. Moses struck a rock, you know, what David did, right? Everyone bowed to it. They looked like God, but they didn't act like God. So the devil shows up and says, You're hungry, aren't you? If you're the son of God, why don't you turn these stones into bread? But God had reached his hand down into the glove God himself had so filled the human being Jesus full of the spirit went into the desert come on so when the devil says turn these stones into bread he got something he didn't expect he got up right in the face the word also says and does not live on bread alone. Three times the devil tempted him the same way he tempted Eve, but God had put his hand down into the human suit and he was receiving something he had never seen. A church on offense, brother. A man who came to hand him his head not bow like some daffodil. Amen. He came for a Come on now. What was different about Jesus? Is it just that He didn't yield to His flesh? Is it did, that He didn't didn't love the world? Well, all those things are true, but why didn't He? Because He was so full of the Spirit of God. In fact, when we think about this temptation, we probably, probably should remember that John 3 says this. This is John 3, 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the Spirit without limit. Come on, say unlimited. 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 Spencer, how far can you throw a football? Uh, 50 yards. About 50 yards. Watch, I'm going to throw one about five feet. Can you throw that football 50 yards? What's wrong? It looks like a football. Is it a football, Spencer? It's, a, it's got laces on it, doesn't it? It, it? It's got two ends and it's got a stripe. It's, it's, it's a football, isn't it? Why can we not throw this one 50 yards? Why will it not do what it is designed to do? It's missing something, isn't it, friends? It is missing something. It is not filled. It needs a Holy Ghost injection. It needs life. It needs something inside of it. It needs to be filled with something other than itself. Man, before you feel something, you have to to make room for it. You have to circumcise a heart before it can be filled with the power of God. You have to make room for something. Jesus made room. He cast out the desire of His flesh. He cast out the love of this world. He made perfect room for the power of God in His life so that with every breath that He took, Every moment in his life, he yielded to the power of God. And what is happening is he's getting more and more full so that he can do what God designed him to do. How many pumps is this going to take? How many? I have no idea, friends. But I know that the Lord Almighty will fill you with as much as it takes because He gives the Spirit Without limit. How much do you want? How much do you want? Because you are given without limit. How much does it take? I don't know. I want all He has. Amen. Three temptations were given Jesus. How many have been given you? Only three? How much spirit do you need, friends? What's it going to take to hit the mark? Come on now. Would you rather throw this football than the other one, Spence? God said to Jeremiah, You are... My war club. Man, a war club with blunted edges does not work. A war club needs to be built for war. Come on, church, whatever it takes. How long is he going to keep pumping? I have no idea until it feels right to do what it was called to do. Come on, we can sit in paralysis. We can say if the Lord wants it done, He'll do it. But He's called us to do it. And He's trying to fill you. But it's hard to get something in a little confined space. It's hard to get something in there where you didn't want it, where you didn't make room for it. In fact, the Bible says that sin's deceitfulness will harden a heart. Nicodemus' heart was hard, so he came and he argued with Jesus. He came and questioned Jesus, but his heart began to soften as he heard the words of Jesus, so that he went and took a tomb with Joseph of Arimathea, and he carved out of stone a place for Jesus, because Jesus had carved out a place in his stony heart for him, so that we had now a ball that would do what it's supposed to do. A glove with a hand in it. A man filled with the power of God. As long as it takes whatever it takes. So we can sit and argue whether you get at at salvation all the Holy Ghost you'll ever get. Or we can argue about a second experience. We can say that it has to do with terms or doesn't. Or prophecy or doesn't. Friends, I want all there is to have. I want all of that warrior inside me that I can possibly get. How many miracles in the Bible are preceded with? And then Peter full of the Holy Spirit. And then Paul full of the Holy Spirit. How much do you want? You want an empty grave? Get a full heart full of the Holy Ghost. Because the nature that is in us and God's nature are at war. And He will change your nature. Why did Jesus have victory over the world? Why did He have victory over His own flesh? Because He had the divine nature of God without limit. He could look at somebody and say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then say, do you believe this? Come on church, a lot of people say yes, but they don't live like it. At least the man in Mark 9, at least the man in Mark 9, he was honest. He said, I do believe. Well, help me in my unbelief. What do we need help with? We need His Spirit to show us His kingdom. We need His Spirit to fill our hearts and lives. We need to heed His words in John 14, verse 15. He said, If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him, for He lives with you and will be you. In you, During the time after Jesus resurrected and before he ascended in the first chapter of Acts in the eighth verse, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. When the devil came to tempt Jesus, he found something he didn't expect. A man that had no fleshly weaknesses. A man that had no attachments to the world. A man that had the presence of God in unlimited fashion so that the fullness of the deity was in him. He left him. Luke says he left him. You know what James 4 7 says? Submit yourself then to God, to the, to God and resist the devil, and he will flee from. You feel oppressed by the devil. You feel beat up by the devil. The solution is not to call him ugly names. It's certainly not to go see a Catholic priest. You know what the solution is? Submit yourself to God. Begin to resist Him. He will run from someone like you. You know, why would a shark eat something that fights back when there's all those seals out there that don't? I used to be in the security business. It was a miserable job. I'm telling you, the Lord taught me more according through small attic spaces. Every house in North Baton Rouge has three feet of dirt in the attic. It just does. And you breathe it all in and then you inevitably get to a corner where the roofing hacks are hitting you and you can't turn around. I want to give up. If I thought the EMS could have got my fat body out of that attic, I'd have just died right there. (laughs) Our goal was never, never to make it so that someone could not break into a house. That's impossible. You know, An international jewel thief, if he wants to break into a house in North Baton Rouge, she's going to succeed. I don't know what he'd steal, but he'd steal something. The goal was to make it less attractive. The goal was to make it harder. The goal was to make him pick an easier target. Come on now. He found an impenetrable target in Jesus. What does he find in you? There's spiritual violence happening all around us. Are you a victim? Are you a participant? What are you? Maybe you're just an easy target the resurrecting power of the living God is available for us. I don't want to teach everything that we could possibly teach, but I do want to tell you this. Hebrews 7 verse 16 says something. If you beat me there, read 16 and 17. If I beat you, I beat you there. I'm sorry. See, Dustin, my Bible still got something in it. And what we have said is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. See, Job's question, Job's Job's problem was answered. Someone laid their hand upon God and laid their hand upon man and they proved that they were who they said they were by coming back from the dead, laying down their life and picking it back up again. Can any of you do that? Let me ask you, right now, if you concentrate hard, take a deep breath, meditate, see if you can give up your spirit real quick. It can't be done, but Jesus could. He could. His body obeyed his spirit. You know why it obeyed his spirit? Because the spirit was in control. So when he breathed his last and he said it was finished, his body didn't get to gasp for another breath of air. His heart didn't get to beat another beat. His spirit was a master over his flesh. He didn't say, "But there, wait, there's, there's, you know, I never got to go see Mama. I never got to go do such." That the world had no attraction to him. He had unlimited divine power to lay down his life and pick it up again. Now, you know what's more beautiful than that? First Peter says we have everything we need for life and godliness. For He has made us to participate in His divine nature. If you are willing, He will give you so much of Himself that no sin has mastery over you. He will give you so much of Himself that you can actually walk as He did. He's not here to condemn you this day. You wouldn't have to. You would already be condemned. You would already be in your sins and death. Instead, He dismisses our accusers. He throws them out of the room. He says, I'm willing to forgive you, but I want you to walk as I walked. And he doesn't stop there. He said, I won't leave you as an orphan. Wait. Wait in Jerusalem. Friends, we don't have to wait in Jerusalem, but you have to wait wherever you are. You have to stop whatever you're doing. You have to say, I want your power at all costs. But you will never win in your fight with sin. There's warfare between sin and human beings. And there is only one way out. Your flesh will never defeat spiritual powers. But the Holy Spirit of God is the liberator. The Holy Spirit of God is the power fallen on man from on high. How do I know this? If I I had never been to the grave in Jerusalem, and I have, praise God. If I had never been to Israel and seen the mountain where the resurrection is coming occur. And I've seen it. I can still know it because I felt that resurrecting power in me the first time I desired to sin and said, no, in the name of Jesus, that is not me anymore. You will not, master me." I wanted to do that all of my life, and I couldn't. I was a slave. I wanted to stop being violent. I wanted to stop being sexual. I wanted to stop having a foul mouth. I wanted all of those things, and I had been a slave to it all of my life but the moment the risen Savior spoke to me and I became obedient, He began to pour His nature into mine and I could say no. Amen. 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 I'd been a little uh, daffodil, a glove that could be pushed over, but God reached His hand down inside of me and He made me more than a mere man. Amen. He made me a supernatural son of God. And, for, and the book of John says... To as many as who believe on Him, He will give the right to become sons of God. So the question is, do you want to be a mere man? Or do you want resurrecting power? Do you want to become a son of God? Matthew, come on up here. In Acts 4, 2, Acts 4, 33, Acts 17, 32, Acts 24, 15, and 24, 21, they preach not Jesus' resurrection, but in Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. They preached the power that was exerted in Him would be exerted in you. Is that something for the end time only? Is that only for your dry bones in the ground? Surely it is for now. Because the prophet Joel said He would pour out His Spirit on all flesh. And it began happening in Acts 2 and it never stopped happening. You can say it ceased. You can find a theologian to agree with you, but then you have to argue with the man who has had the experience and is not simply confined to an argument. He poured out His power on me. My mom is here today. My wife is here today. My mom's known me since I was born. (laughs) My wife's known me since I was 15 years old. They can testify that there is power in my life today that was not present then. I didn't just grow up. I didn't just mature. I was a slave and I have been liberated. His power is available to change your entire life. I never prayed a sinner's prayer. I hope that doesn't hurt your feelings. I didn't know what it was, didn't like it, and didn't like the people that I heard talking about it. They seems like some strange brand of politicians that spoke in octaves that I didn't like to hear. It was just one heartbroken human being over his own sin and the slavery that I was in. And out of my gut, somewhere down inside me, came a cry for help. I said, change me. And he rushed in with his power and he never stopped pouring himself into me. I've backed away. I've decided, oh, well, that's enough. I don't want to be that weird. I mean, I'm already kind of weird but not quite that weird. But then I loved him loved what he was doing. I said, okay, I'm willing to go even further and even further. It'll make you do something like pick your family up and move across the states. It'll make you do something crazy like move away from everybody you've ever known and go somewhere just to experience something. And you don't have to go anywhere. Right now, right here, he gives the spirit without limit. Too long people have read John 3 and they've said he gave Jesus the spirit without limit. Read it again. It says He gives the Spirit without limit. Jesus was just willing to receive it without limit. We put limits on it. We say as long as it's dignified. We say as long as it doesn't make me feel silly. As long as I'm still in control. You being in control is the problem, friends. That is the Lordship issue. On this day we celebrate an empty grave. Is your life represented by a dead body? Or is it represented by the power of God? What most clearly defines you? A slave to your flesh? Or the kind of man that can tell his flesh no? The world no? And so the devil runs from you. I pray you drink of the Spirit this day. I don't have a Boy Scout merit badge waiting for you and I don't keep any myself. There's no ticks on my desk somewhere that says, Oh, another one that thinks like I do. I just care less whether or not you think like I do. I do care whether or not you are a sin slave or a righteousness slave. I care about that. I want to ask you how much of God is enough for you. I want to ask you how far do you want to go? You want a little bit or do you want a lot? Do you, do you want to cross all the way over the Jordan and into the new land? Or do you just want to stick your finger in and call yourself an Israelite? See, I want all of it. I want all there is to have. And if that prophecy I want to prophesy. If it's working miracles, I want to work miracles. If it's praying in languages I don't understand, then I want those too. And I'm willing to stand on my head at a street corner if that's what He wanted. What are you willing to do? Because the great men of faith went lost everything. They left earth and Chaldeans. They went to mountains in the distance. They risked everything. The great apostles left their family and their businesses and they followed the Jewish carpenter. They left everything. What does salvation cost you? What have you separated from? Do you really want Him at all costs or do you want as much of Him as you can get while holding on to the world? Do you want to keep a foot in the grave and call the other foot resurrected? Yeah. Are you somewhere between life and death? The priest has come. He's putting his hand on your shoulder and on God's. He's making peace, and he will give you power if you let him. Stand here.